and welcome to Lake Forest On Topic. I'm your host, Tim Finnegan. On this podcast, we hope to give the residents of Lake Forest information and insight into the people, places, and actions that shape this city. Today, my guest is Victoria Smith. Victoria is a retired marketing executive who, in the early 70s, was one of the first women executives at Procter & Gamble. She later moved to the advertising agency, DDB Needham International, where she was a senior vice president. Victoria moved to Lake Forest in 1980 with her two daughters. In 1987, she married her husband, Larry, and after a couple of decades in Lake Forest, she and Larry decided to move to Tuscany. In 2021, Victoria wrote a book, The Little Lark Still Sings, that portrays the joys and struggles of creating a new life in a distant country. Today, she joins us from her home in Cortona, Italy. Victoria, greetings from your old hometown and welcome to the podcast. Buonasera, Tim. And thank you for inviting me to Lake Forest on topic. That's great. I'm glad you could join us. So the first question, when, when you moved uh, to the area, the Chicago area, back in uh, 1980, why did you choose Lake Forest as a place to live? Well, I was a single mom, um, and I wanted my daughters to live in a community where there were stable families and life that was m- the life I wish that I had had if I hadn't been divorced. Um, And Lake Forest was just so beautiful. I could barely afford the little house we bought, but um, I loved it. It was on Morningside Drive. And and so uh, a few years later, you you met Larry uh, and you got married and you bought the Glore House on Mayflower Road, which happens to be the only Frank Lloyd Wright house in Lake Forest. As I understand, at the time, it wasn't in very good condition and required quite a bit of renovation. How did you go about restoring that house? Well, restoring the Glore House could be a whole podcast on itself, <laughs> so I'm going to try to be brief here. We bought the house in 1986. It had been abandoned for at least two years. It was in total disrepair. Um, The supporting door frames and mahogany wall, the supporting door frames, which were all mahogany, were rotted. The roof leaked literally buckets one night. Um, And Mr. Wright's signature floors, which are Cherokee red concrete, Hmm. were cracked and broken. Um, And if you've driven by, you know the house is mahogany on the outside. Well, that entire exterior which is solid planks of boat-grade mahogany, were stained black. Hmm. Um, and, of course, the yard was totally weeds. It was, it was really not a house that anyone wanted. Um, we started by working with the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. And we, needed, we wanted access to the archives um, so we could find the plans because we really didn't know what the intention was for the house. They assigned an architect to us. And it was, it was so exciting for me. I had long been a fan of Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, I had no idea I'd ever live in a Frank Lloyd Wright house, let alone restore one. So the architect and I found the original blueprints all signed by Mr. Wright. I remember sitting on the floor in the archives, turning these huge pages. Um, we learned that his design included a copper roof and a huge triangular red concrete deck with an enormous lily pond cascading into the ravine. It was spectacular, and we sort of didn't know where to start. But um, 
we ended up spending six years and a significant investment to bring the house back to life and to complete his vision. Um, we put the copper roof that's there on it, the copper roof that's there now, we put that on. It's 140 feet long, solid copper. Sure. Re-removed re, 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 and numbered each of those mahogany boards on the exterior, ran them through a planer, scored the back to prevent more warping, and then re-finished them and reassembled them like a gigantic puzzle. Um, we had the red concrete floors repaired and restored. I replaced all 85 of the small triangular plexiglass light covers. <laughs> um, we updated the bathrooms and kitchens, of yeah. course, but all in the same configuration. Wow. Um, the, the, our desire was to not only restore it, but to really finish Mr. Wright's vision for the house. Yeah, it, so we added the triangular deck. Okay. But no lily pond. It was just yeah. a lower, lower, uh, a wooden deck that's just a low, little bit lower. It, it, I know it was uh, one of the, the last homes that he designed in his life, and it's different from a lot of his earlier work. What, what are some of the unique features of, of the home as you went through and tried to figure out what his concepts were? Well, it's put in the category of Usonian homes sometimes, but the architect we worked with, said he would just call it a one-of-a-kind. <laughs> it is supposed to be the last residential property that Mr. Wright actually went to and made changes when he was there. Um, so it does have that historical aspect as well. Mm -hmm. um, the inside flows to the outside, the red concrete walls. The floors go in and out as though there are no walls. Mm -hmm. um, there's a row of, of windows in the front that, that are concrete and have designs in them. Hmm. And those, um, he, he often liked to do, do ribbon windows. Um, he also loved to do things that were almost impossible technically. Sure. <laughs> and he, he likes lower ceilings and higher ceilings. So in the entry, it was very low. And then suddenly it would be two stories high. We had the same floating staircase that yeah. uh, Falling Water has. Mm -hmm. And in the living room, it was more than two stories high. And the very corner, like the, the prow of a ship, mm -hmm. was mitered glass. Wow. So another thing we did was anything that could be um, double-paned glass, we made double-paned glass. But still in the winter, we often had ice. Sure formed in the inside of that um, enormous uh, glass ceiling in the living room so, or glass wall in the living room. I mean, it, at the time you moved there in this, you know, architecturally significant home that you brought back from, you know, the dead, so to speak, you were also <laughs> trying to create a house for a family with five kids, I believe, right? So how, how was that trying to figure out how to do that while still honoring kind of the integrity of his design? Well, to live in a, a right, uh, to live in a home by Mr. Wright is truly to live in a piece of art. And we brought three teenagers and two teenagers together to form a blended family, um, which wasn't pretty in the beginning. <laughs> but we had one wonderful thing happen, and that is the kids all went into this house and they each chose a different bed bedroom. 
So there was no fighting over which bedroom each person got. And the bedrooms were tiny, but we lived there quite happily. Um, one area of the living room was sort of bean bags and a TV, even though it was a very formal living room. Uh, Mr. Wright believed that all the space should be in community spaces. And so the, um, the bedrooms and bathrooms were quite small, but, but we, we did fine there. Mm -hmm. um, they, of course, all now are very happy to have once lived in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Sure. So you, 20 years or so, a couple decades in Lake Forest, and you decide you're going to move to Tuscany, uh, a beautiful place, uh, but it, there's a big difference between going there on vacation and making a life uh, somewhere else. So why Italy and why particularly Cortona? Well, Tim, we went to Italy on our honeymoon in 1987. I think that's probably the beginning of the end. Uh, we came back saying Italy has everything we love. Fabulous art, history, architecture, opera, and of course, um, the best food and wine in the world, according to me. <laughs> and then every year, Larry and I would say, should we go to Italy or someplace else? And when we were going to Italy three times a year, often to the same Tuscan hill town of Cortona, we decided to rent. And we wanted to rent off season so we could see what it was like when there weren't a lot of activities and the, or tourists. So one winter, we rented a very small apartment inside the wall, walls of Cortona. Mm -hmm. It was so cold <laughs> between those stone buildings, medieval stone buildings, and my laundry froze on a pulley clothesline outside of our window. I had no dryer. Mm -hmm. um, Chicago for 35 years and had never felt so cold. <laughs> but every day in that little rented house in Cortona was an adventure. And I also realized not, not long into our adventure that I had also never felt so alive. So that winter, we started looking for a place and talking to the kids about us moving there. Um, the decision to leave Chicago, we loved, we loved Lake Forest. We only moved to the city when the kids uh, left the house and the Frank Lloyd Wright house was a little too big for us. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was a hard decision. We had five kids and by that time, five grandkids in America. But they were enthusiastic. They were happy for us. And now, of course, they love having an Italian home to come visit. Sure. Um, it's really expanded all of our horizons. So you, you go over to Cortona and you buy a very old stone farmhouse. So you have another restoration project on your hands. Not quite the same as Frank Lloyd Wright, but I'm sure uh, quite a bit of work. Yes, it has. It hasn't been lost on me that we seem to be um, we seem to be willing victims of restorations. <laughs> um, the house we bought here is probably three hundred to five hundred years old. Hard to tell. Mm -hmm. um, like all Tuscan farmhouses, it was originally stables downstairs. So sheep, cows, chickens lived downstairs on dirt floor on a dirt floor, and the family, always sharecroppers in those days, lived upstairs. Mm -hmm. But this house is set on a beautiful hillside of terraced olive trees. 
Um, and I just fell in love. I, I, it was so much fun when we first got here because it was almost a ruin again. But to get from upstairs to downstairs, there was only a hole in the floor and a ladder. <laughs> and the stone troughs, feeding troughs for the animals were still downstairs. Um, it's a fairly small house. We have three rooms upstairs, only one bedroom, and three rooms downstairs. But we could also we also had a burned out garage, which the Kumune let us make into a guest house. Um, and as you mentioned, restoration in our area is highly restricted. Um, so nothing could be changed, not one window, door, the same stones. We could just clean them and regrout them. But the color of the grout was prescribed. Wow. So and we thought Lake Forest had tough rules. Yeah. Well. That's why Tuscany and Lake Forest are both so beautiful. Um, our house came with a name, which is a fun story. Uh -huh. Before the Postal Service gave houses numbers, even the most humble farmhouse had a name. And ours is Lodalina, which is a, the name for a lark. Um, and Ina in Italian on anything means little. Mm -hmm. So the name of our house was the Little Lark. Well, Hence the name of my book. Sure. So, you know, in addition to all the work that went into restoring the farmhouse over, over the years, you also had to integrate yourself into a new community that you didn't know anybody and you obviously weren't from there. How difficult to process was that? Well, you know, we'd been here so much. We thought it would be like an extended vacation, or I thought it would be like an extended vacation. But almost from the day we moved in, what we learned was how little we actually knew about Italy, and especially about ourselves and our marriage. Um, living in a foreign culture is very different than a vacation. Um, I, I was a very independent girl had been a single mom and a vice president of a big advertising agency for many years uh, and was kind of unflappable. But when I got to Italy, I was afraid to drive on the narrow roads. I didn't even know how to drive a manual transmission. I didn't count, know how to count the money or understand a question. Um, one of my favorite stories is going into the grocery store and seeing that the women all had gloves on. They didn't, they had little plastic gloves. They didn't touch the produce, hmm. but nowhere to find the plastic gloves. And they were all printing their own labels. And I didn't know how to weigh my produce or, um, <laughs> or print the label. So I, I became much more independent um, and insecure. I wanted Larry to drive for me and speak for me and help me with everything. And so then we sort of started not getting along and our marriage became stressed and seemed to be unraveling. Mm -hmm. And that's the main story of the book. Now, that said, it does have a happy ending and life in Cortona is more amazing than ever. Um, we've been wonderfully invited to things and embraced by the local Cortonesi. Uh, Larry is the only for foreigner to be invited into the local Rotary. <laughs> he was never in Rotary before, but he is now. And last year he was even president. So 
I, I guess I'd say what was once a grand struggle and intimidating is now everyday life. And I have, I feel like I have more courage than ever. And every morning I get up and pinch my arm and think, wow, I live here. Yeah. This is, this is amazing. So, so it's been a great experience. Obviously, <clears throat> life in Tuscany is very different from life in Lake Forest. When you look at each place, what, what are some things you like and miss about Lake Forest or the things that you're happy to be in Tuscany about and not worry about back in the States? Well, I think there's a certain ease of living in Lake Forest or even in the city of, of Chicago, which is where we moved mm -hmm. after, we, um, after all the kids left. Um, doctors are easy to to find and to, to make appointments with. Um, I don't miss the places as much as I miss the people of the people that I loved in Lake Forest and in the city. Mm -hmm. Although I must say Lake Forest is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been because it's um, so well kept. Tuscany's wilder and the hillsides are a little crazy. Our, we have beautiful landscaping on our property, but it's all indigenous plants because I don't want to spend too much watering. Mm -hmm. We're very serious about recycling. Um, so I, I guess I miss the ease of living, but at the same time, when life is a little harder and things, and you struggle with things a bit more, I think you also feel more alive and you learn more. So um, we're very active here. We have an active social life with both locals and other foreigners. Um, but we're retired, and I think that happens anywhere on retirement. Mm -hmm. So I learn something, still learn something new every day. And then the next part of your adventure is you decide to write a book, The Little Lark Still Sings, which details your story of the, the move to... Uh... To Tuscany and, and clearly as we've talked a little bit already you know it wasn't as easy as you maybe thought and, and you learned a lot about yourself and, and and your relationships but what made you decide actually decide to write a book about it well every morning I would wake up when we, the very first summer and think boy tom tomorrow cannot be as interesting Today cannot be as interesting as yesterday was, <laughs> and tomorrow can't possibly be as interesting as I think today is going to be. So I started keeping a journal. And then when um, I became dependent and Larry became um, less available and we were struggling in our marriage, I started writing all that down too. Because I think that relationships and Struggling with relationships is where we all connect in our lives. And the move to Italy became the action. The house became the setting. But the real story uh, was about Larry and my relationship. So at the end of that summer, I had 600 pages of just notes. Um, and I had always wanted to write a book. And I thought, well... If I'm ever going to do it, this is the story I need to tell. Yeah, the premise—the so, premise but, of the book, you know, starts right with the idea of moving to Italy and storing an old farmhouse. But, you know, most of your readers seem to be greatly affected by, you know, your honesty and openness about the challenges you had 
not just with the living, but, you know, your relationships, your marriage, and not really being in control over a lot of things where you've been able to in the past. How difficult was it to write, you know, such personal feelings and emotions to basically a bunch of strangers? Well, with my background in advertising, I always had a writer in mind, a reader in mind. As a writer, I always had a reader in mind. Um, so it was like I was telling my story to my very best friend. And there was nothing I didn't say to this very best friend that I was writing to. Um, and I thought I can always edit this out, but I need to make it the truth while it's raw and present for me. Um, and so I just told the story like it really happened from my perspective, mm -hmm. of course. Larry sometimes jokingly says he needs to write the rebuttal, <laughs> but in the end, he was the hero. So uh -huh. it all ended well. What, what messages do you really want people to take away from, from reading your book? Hmm. Well, in life, we all want success and fun, but we really learn from overcoming difficulties. And Larry and I wanted an adventure. And one of the things I learned is that there are no guarantees on adventures. Um, but I think the two biggest lessons I would say from the book um, and not just from writing it, but also from publishing it, from doing this wild thing that we did, was that we are never too old to reach for our life dream. I've wanted to live in a foreign country for a long time, and I wanted to write a book since I was in high school. So I was 60 when we move, moved, and I was 75 when I finally published the book. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know what the next life dream will be, but I know that I'm not too old to work and reach for it. Yeah, and you, you've said this, you know, your life has changed completely since you published the book. How so? Well, uh, let me, I do want to add one more life lesson sure. that, I, that I think is the most important message in the book is that life turn, can turn out even better than your dreams because of the challenges, not in spite of them. So there were a lot of challenges to move, in moving here. There were a lot of challenges in publishing. There have been challenges since then. But life is turning out better than I ever dreamed because of those challenges. So regarding the book, well, I expected to write a book and maybe publish it. You never know. Mm -hmm. And then check that off my list and go back to my normal life, which I liked quite a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but what has happened could never have been expected. Um, the Comune, which is our town government of Cortona, mm -hmm. sponsored a book launch event. They told me to plan for 30 to 50, which is the maximum for book events. I set up for 80 because I'm an optimist <laughs> and we had 170 people there. Oh wow! So people were sitting on the stone steps and standing in the piazza. And it was an amazing experience. Is, is it published in um, Italian too? It is not. Okay. I keep 
getting asked that question and someday perhaps I'll do that, but um, not yet. Um, however, for that event, Larry and I offered to donate the proceeds of the English version of my book to the Comune um, to restore any painting they chose. And they chose um, a painting by Luca Signorelli, who is a Renaissance painter from Cortona, very important, actually influenced Michelangelo in his uh, work on the Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel. And we were a little taken aback and thrilled by their choice. Um, and then following that, one afternoon, the phone rang and it was the U.S. Consul General from Florence. Ooh. And my first thought was, oh no, <laughs> they finally figured out I don't have an Italian driver's license, which is really a no-no if you're a resident. But it was really because she wanted to meet me and talk about the book and see the painting before it was restored. Oh, wow. So we've now become friends. That would have never happened without sure. the book. That's awesome. And the painting is called Il Tondo. It's now in display in a major exhibition because this year is um, we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the death of Luca Signorelli. Um, and the, ex the restoration is just remarkable. I wish I actually wish you could see it or we could put it on video right now because um, it's uh, really has has now been identified as a very important um, painting, especially to Cortona. Uh -huh. And one other surprise what some of your listeners may already know this um, in May in Lake Forest, Christ Church sponsored a women's gathering. And it was an Italian night and they invited me to be the speaker. Mm -hmm. And we had over 350 women attend that event. Wow. Um, and after that, I walked that air for a month. But, <laughs> you know, I get fan mail. I get requests to do uh, discussions with book clubs. It's all, oh, and you all asked me to do this pod <laughs> podcast. None of that would have happened if it weren't for moving to Italy and then writing the book. Yeah. So life is quite different. Yeah. So yeah, I, you met on your website, you, you do have a special offer for book clubs and you just mentioned it is, is, are you hearing it being put to, picked up by a lot of book clubs and how do you interact with them when they reach out to you? Um, they can just contact me through the website and yes, I've really had the privilege of meeting um, a lot of wonderful men and women Mostly women in book clubs are the ones who want to talk to me because they want to talk to me about their lives <laughs> and tell me about their responses to the book. Um, but I do have some wonderful reviews from men. Um, but one example is that Cortona has a sister city just outside of Indianapolis, Carmel. <laughs> and they Carmel. <laughs> did you really? I did. What a great town. Yeah. They well, we're now sister cities, uh -huh. um, and they invited me to, to, they chose the book as their 20th anniversary book for um, the oh, town government book club, uh -huh. and then we did a Zoom, and it was, it was great fun, but of course, I'd love to do more because it's a, a great way to keep the momentum going on books, sure. but it's also so much fun to meet the people who have read it. Sure. Uh, slightly different topic, I'm, but I'm sure you get this question all the time. 
What advice do you have for anybody who's thinking about doing what you did and moving and retiring abroad? Well, of course, I would tell, tell anyone who's seriously considering it to do it because it will enrich their life beyond measure. Um, obviously, from a practical standpoint, they find a place they love, they visit often, and I would advise them to rent first. I thought that was a, 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 an important part of our really being able to make the decision. Um, and like anything else in life, you just stay curious and open to learning. Um, living in a different culture will teach anyone humility and patience. And it awakens us to appreciate um, the vastness of the different types of people in our world um, and how big the world is. And of course, it awakens us to a new appreciation of who we are, I think. Um, Larry and I don't expect to ever become Italian. We'll always be an adult, we'll always be American. Um, but we have an even deeper appreciation of America, of Americans, of Italy, and of Italians than we did before we first visited or moved and had this experience of living in, uh, of really having lived in both places. Sure. Um, it, it, it never gets easy to make that kind of move. Um, and obviously, my next big hurdle is to get my Italian driver's license. <laughs> now that I've now that I've confessed to all our listeners yeah, that I don't have take them. on those hill roads. Uh, mm. So, uh, what's next for you? What's your next project? Another restoration? Another book? Uh... Well, we are probably crazy, but we did buy a little ruin smaller than our house. It's next door, in much worse condition. So far, all we've done is um, get electricity and water to it for the first time in history. And we're trying to explore what we really can do with it. Mm -hmm. I don't know what we'll be able to do with it, but it is really an exciting property and an exciting um, um, project. Mm -hmm. And I'm often asked if I'll write a cookbook. Um, I, I doubt it because there are so many... Um, online recipes and cookbooks in the world, but I did put the recipes that I'm most asked about on my website. And actually just keeping up with the things that this book is bringing my way is keeping life quite interesting. So um, before I take on another big project, I'm gonna try to, to um, nurture this one and, and make sure that the story um, is available to as many people as are interested. That's great. Well, Victoria, you know, thank you so much for talking to us today and appreciate you taking the time to catch up with us back in Lake Forest. For those of you that are interested or looking for their next book club book, The Little Lark Still Sings, signed copies are available at the Lake Forest Bookstore. So thanks, and I hope, uh, hope you continue to enjoy that life in, in Italy. Thank you. And if you, John or Jennifer, or other listeners ever come to visit, please let me know and we'll have a coffee in the piazza. Oh, that would be great awesome. fun. That great fun awesome. to meet you in person. That sounds awesome. Uh, Lake Forest on Topic is a production of the Lake Forest for Transparency organization. To learn more or leave some feedback, go to lf4transparency.com. 
That's lf4transparency.com. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Karras and John Turkla. Sound engineering is by John Turkla. I'm Tim Finnegan. Grazie per l'ascolto e buona giornata. Oh, bravo. <laughs> Arrivederci.